Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, I'm joined by William Wheelwright. He's a thoughtful man who's full of life. You probably know him from his article on ice cream nationalism, his appearance on Caribbean rhythms, or from his frequent literary spaces on Homer and Tennyson, or maybe his nice Twitter posts. Uh, today, we're going to talk about agriculture, his plan for a school that, from what I understand, Peter Thiel will be funding, and Homer's Iliad. William, how are you? Hey, how's it going? Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad. You know, we've we've become pals through our uh, through the Homer spaces that we that we well have basically just started to co-host at this point. Um, and uh, and it's fun to uh, to do to do your podcast now. Yes. Yeah. I'm so glad to have you. And th- those uh, spaces have been a, a true delight. Um, and and we yeah. will talk about Homer. So, um, but before we do that. Mm, could we? So you, you've coined an outstanding phrase uh, that contains within it immense mimetic power. Agriculture mm-hmm. precedes culture. Now you, you've said a great deal about this elsewhere, um, and I have like links uh, that I'll put up to where you have talked about it. But it seems to me that based on your tweets um, and subsequent articles, that you are always developing your thoughts on this matter. Um, could you say a little mm-hmm. bit about what this means that agriculture precedes culture? Yes, well, it's both a sort of just a simple uh, assertion of fact, um, in the sense that you know uh, it's it's a basic kind of um, chronological reality, uh, and and I'm using agriculture sort of broadly conceived in this in this case. Uh, so I don't necessarily just mean cultivation of the soil as agriculture, which obviously is a much more limited definition. But I guess I just most I mean kind of land management uh, in general, which obviously is much broader. Um, in its scope, it, in, it would include sort of, you know, hunter-gatherer type uh, land management techniques in order to promote game and so on, uh, or and, and you know, um, edible flora, uh, but also, you know, up to and including um, uh, industrial, uh, you know, mechanized and, and uh, today sort of uh, artificially intelligence-powered agriculture, artificial intelligence-powered agriculture. So, um yeah, uh, I'm, I'm as I say, I'm using that I'm using the term agriculture very broadly, um, and and saying that you know what a culture uh, or what a people the way they practice or the way they get their food, um, and not just food but also fi- fibers and um, you know uh, uh, fuel and other and other things that you know um, are derived from directly from the you know yeah, interface with the land um, will. Uh, you know, just <laughs> it precedes culture. So uh, before a culture can be established, um, just as a matter of sort of caloric physics and reality, um, you know, uh, people need to, there needs to be a, a surplus of, 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 of calories generated and the agriculture uh, broadly conceived has to be efficient enough that um, a culture can be can, can be allowed to flourish, uh, outside of merely the getting of food and the filling of the stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also in a sort of, uh, more abstract sense, I believe this, uh, in the sense that, and I think that a lot of ancient and, um, uh, both, both historians and, and, and mythological and, and, you know, literary writers, uh, uh, you can find this idea, um, throughout the, the Western and probably, um, other canons, uh, which is that you know um, the the culture of a place, the culture of a people, 
will have its its reflection in um, the form of agriculture that it practices and 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 the condition of its agriculture. And so, um, you know, this this sort of image of uh, pre-Arthurian England as this uh, sort of uh, diseased and uh, fallow land where, um, you know, nothing har- bountiful harvests were impossible. Um, and another another example that comes to mind is, um, you know, uh, the day after um, the October Revolution was consummated, I think November 8th or 9th, um, that one of the, basically the first law that the Soviets passed was the Land Reform Act, you know, the land, I forget what they call it, but the, mm-hmm. the land decree or something like that. And, and essentially that reformed ownership of the land and obviously totally uh, upended the way agriculture was practiced in Russia and, and led to, you know, uh, in, insanely massive famines. Um, and so the way that, uh, and, and obviously that's, <laughs> that's a reflection of communism. So, um, at, well, I mean, I don't say that just gratuitously, uh, the way that they practiced the, the actual reforms that they enacted really did reflect their ideology. And, um, and so, and so, uh, you know, I think that basically what this, what the, the kind of insinuation of all of this is, is that from, um, uh, a culture's agriculture, you can predict, or from a people's agriculture, you can predict their culture. If you ju- just by looking at um, the the way an agriculture is practiced, you can sort of make certain assumptions and extrapolations uh, out into the just the uh, the social lives uh, of of that society. And so, for for example, um, you know, uh, uh, American agriculture is uh, you know incredibly homogenous um, and and uh, a, a term of art that I that I've coined that I like is a uh, um, unlimited uniformity. Um, and so, you know, you, you look out, you look out into the, in the Midwest and just see this endless sea of, uh, of, of, you know, of green. Um, and it's, it's a very different picture from what would have been there, uh, prior to about 50 years ago when, uh, the individual farms and also, um, regions were very, were very diversified and different from one another and practice very different things, but it's become very homogenous, homogenous in terms of, uh, how it looks. And I think that, um, America, uh, for all of its, um, American culture, for all of its, you know, um, uh, uh, moaning about diversity, uh, (laughs) the same thing can be said. And, um, also, you know, uh, it's, it's willingness to accept kind of, um, uh, wanton, um, interventions into, uh, you know, the, the very matter of like biology and life itself, uh, which would be genetically modified organisms, um, you know, where uh, just for people who don't know, essentially the way that works is um, uh, scientists take a corn genome and they insert like, uh, uh, you know, a sequence of genes from like a rabbit or something. And that somehow uh, makes it so that the corn is more tolerant of certain, um, you know, pesticides and things like that, that the seed company also sells. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, (laughs) and so, you know, um, that's, that's how they do that. And, you know, the, there's, uh, a widespread acceptance of, um, you know, castrating children in America. So, uh, (laughs) there's the, I, I view these two things as, um, as basically the same attitude that, that this is, you know, acceptable or possible, uh, ethically or not even, you know, I don't even worry about the ethics of it so much. It's just, uh, (laughs) um you know does it does it uh does it um is it is it smart is it is it reflective of a um of a thriving society and culture Uh, i think not so uh, uh, the point is that they both 
they both kind of proceed from the same hubris with regard to uh, the stuff of life. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that it, just that the look of it, even as you point out, somehow there's a, a correspondence between that and like other cultural things. It is, it, it is like striking how all of these things fit together. Um, mm-hmm. And also makes me think too, yeah, that like, and, and I'm sure you've, well, you've obviously thought about this kind of thing, but like just that, yeah, what you eat like constitutes like what you are. Like I think about, you know, growing up, like probably from the ages of like five through 18, I had Captain Crunch and Fruity Pebbles every day. So like my, <laughs> the most formative time of my life, that's what constituted like uh, my being. Yeah. Uh, it's unfortunate yeah. in retrospect, but all, all you can do is, you know, not do that later, I guess. Um, <laughs> um, but so this is this is really interesting because I think, I don't know, maybe not much is known about like right wing environmentalism. And it seems to me that it's it's much different than left wing environmentalism. And there's a quote that you have from your article, like agriculture is art that starts to spell this out. Um, so you say, quote, um, and anthropo- this is like a leftist, uh, I guess you could say a left-wing approach to environmentalism. You say, an anthropology of acrimony between man and his planet, the highest possible aspiration of which is neutrality, a parallel existence devoid of contact, in which human beings will one day literally hover contactlessly over the surface of the earth. But in such a world, we would lose the will to live and reproduce, as so many already have in today's world. That, that's a powerful statement about the the difference and seems to really flow out of your understanding of how agriculture precedes culture. Would you, would you be willing to say a little bit about how you see left-wing and right-wing approaches to the environment, uh, like the ways in which they disagree or like sort of like clarify the differences between them? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, uh, I had forgotten that line, but uh, yeah, that definitely um, <laughs> sums it up. Um, I think, uh, I think, um, Yes. Uh, and I, I came into uh, intimate contact with sort of leftist environmentalism, uh, unbeknownst to, uh, you know, sort of uh, unaware of myself in, in high school and college, um, uh, assuming that, you know, it was all uh, hunky dory and, and sort of quickly became disabused of that notion. Uh, and uh, and yeah, I think ultimately the 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 sort of um, the organizing principle of, of leftist environmentalism is uh, is very similar to uh, it, it, it's a great it's a great example actually of what I'm talking about with the agricultural connection to to culture. Uh, the leftist organizing principle of, environment, of environmentalism is neutrality, uh, which is ultimately just you know saying that it would be better if men if mankind had never existed at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's <laughs> it's interesting uh, because uh, you know uh, Silenus says uh, what what is best in life never to have been born at all. Right. <laughs> so you know there are definitely um, some over, there's some overlap there, but it's not it's not at all from a philosophical perspective. It's uh, well, I, I I think you know from for a, the leftist who um who feels impelled to say that, not that very many of them I think would actually uh, defend that line of thinking very far. Obviously, there are like you know depopulationists and antinatalists and stuff, but they're of course you know sort of um, uh, extremists, and 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 I don't think the average uh, left wing person. Um, broadly conceived is uh is in that camp um what they what they are is is uh is sort of what what they have is a is a conception of nature that i think is ultimately faulty um and their conception of nature is uh this sort of um this sort of noble savage type idea 
that, you know, um, a return to nature, uh, which I think all of, all of mankind ultimately desires. Uh, and I think, um, you know, uh, a sort of defining, well, uh, uh, the, the defining distinction between man and the rest of, you know, the animal kingdom is that he and his nature are, or he is alienated from his nature. Uh, man is. And um, so it's natural. <laughs> uh, well, it's a funny word to use, but it is natural for for man to desire a return to his nature and the difference. And that's sort of what I think most uh, religion and politics are uh, oriented towards is ultimately um, providing an answer to that, to that, uh, or providing, you know, a means and a, um, yeah, a, 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 con- a conveyance to, to that, uh, to that telos. And, the difference between the left and right is is the conception of nature, and this mm-hmm. this ultimately gets down to um, to uh, you know the envi- the difference between their environmentalism and ultimately between you know the agriculture that we have and the agriculture that I that I um, that I advocate for uh, transitioning to, and so um, the con- difference in the conceptions of nature uh, would be that for the left, nature is this kind of um, or you know nature for man is this kind of uh, you know, uh, longhouse type um, situation where it's like, you know, uh, small communities and everything is like equal. Uh, uh, women and men have like equal power over the over the community and um, everybody works together to um, to help each other out. Uh, this uh, as I'm saying this, I'm I'm called to mind of a, uh, a commune that a friend of mine grew up on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it collapsed when he was a teenager. His parents had already moved out of it, but it and it collapsed a few a few years later but uh basically uh it was a very much a longhouse commune um you know uh, not completely because every each family had their own individual house but like the heating system for example for the entire community it was like you know 20 or 30 houses very like eco-friendly small houses on a on a hillside and there was a farm and uh like a dairy business and stuff so it was kind of like you know and basically one guy ran the whole dairy business ultimately it was supposed to be like a community effort but <laughs> it came to be that one guy was like in charge and it was like he took it over as a business and he lived there. Um, and, but, but one thing that I remember was um, when I was there visiting, they had this like big, like wood burner um, boiler that was, you know, wood fired. So that was like eco-friendly compared to like, you know, oil or whatever mm-hmm. the alternative fossil fuels would be. And, um, but people had to like, you know, it was required that you had to like pitch in to like split firewood Um uh, in order to fire, like have fuel for the boiler and every family had to do like X number of hours. Mm-hmm. And ultimately this just caused like an, an unsustainable amount of tension, just this one thing. <laughs> um, even though everybody was living in separate houses, you know, yada, yada, yada. So uh, uh, like that kind of thing is like the dream of the leftist. And there's, if you go to like Vermont or New Hampshire, there's so many of these old communes that just like, lasted for 10 years it was like free love everybody was impregnating everybody else um and and they really did have this like dream of um you know this return to nature kind of uh yeah like lofty dream and um and that was really what it was and i think and so for them a return is kind of like a return downwards uh to think of it abstractly like back to the soil and i think for the right as like sort of the online right, the BAP sphere thinks of it, it's it's this ascendant ascendancy, and um, you know not everybody is going to be capable of of really doing this, but certainly um, having having those who are capable of it kind of will then elevate, ele- you know, it will sort of be a rising tide for everyone. But um, you know this notion that like man it, uh, sort of in confrontation with 
the limitations of nature, uh, you know, so this is why I think a big reason that so many of us are into weightlifting and bodybuilding and, and um, martial arts and other athletic pursuits is because those things are, are essentially, if you abstract them, they're really just, you know, putting oneself right on the limits and, um, you know, the borders of, of what you're capable of doing. I mean, weightlifting is literally like the abstract version of that. Like you're, you've, you've taken, you've taken just like, you know, the most basic form of um, physical activities, like lifting things and putting them down and, and, and tried to get as, as close as you possibly can to what you're, to what you're, to, to the limit of your capacity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, and obviously you, as you through this disciplined regime, assuming that you are disciplined in your, in your, you know, in your workouts and your, in your diet and, and so on, um, you can push that limit further and further back. Uh, and, you know, this is, I think, kind of like the right wing idea that through, um, that through, you know, a discipline, a disciplined regime, um, you know, that should ultimately be like societally organized. Obviously, there used to be things such as this, uh, they don't really exist anymore. And I think that's their lack of existence is part of the reason for their the great malaise that so many young men and so many of us feel and disillusionment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so, um, you know, that, that, you know, by putting, by putting like the sort of elite young men in confrontation with that, you can actually, ultimately, some of them will be able to ascend to and transcend those limitations and like become, you know, almost uh, deified. Uh, and obviously, uh, the, the the great figures that, that we like, Napoleon and, and people like that, Caesar and stuff, are, are examples of people who achieved that and like, you know, just uh, achieved kind of like godlike unimaginably massive uh massive things Mm -hmm. and you know there's sort of like lesser versions of i think there's lesser versions of this like in sports and stuff Mm -hmm. um yeah like jordan peterson talks about this where you know like leo messi or something will just like you know people just like are just amazed by like his ability and so there's Mm -hmm. like this sort of uh you know tamed version of it in in like modern sports with with certain stars and and that really I mean, young men like uh, go crazy for that. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, normie young men. I mean, <laughs> right. But uh, but yeah. So, um, I think I think uh, to answer your question, um, uh, this is th- th- this different conception in nature is what uh, leads to the different kind of two different kinds of environmentalism, which you know, because um, well, so so like I was saying, uh, le- the the left wing conception, this sort of downwards trajectory back to like the mud and the dirt and stuff um <laughs> uh, uh is it you know um is kind of like the same it's the same idea as this like you know neutrality like reduce your carbon footprint thing like ultimately just reducing yourself to nothing like that's kind of the same idea and doing it like for the community um whereas right wing is like you know become a lion uh like like uh, uh do the like observe the patterns of nature and um, integrate them into yourself through like a, a, a regime of like uh, total discipline and like commitment to uh, to like the work of art that is your life. <laughs> so, yes. yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Yeah, so, okay. So left-wing account of nature from what you're saying. So you sort of have kind of like small community, men and women exert equal, you know, power over ruling. And, and, and so it seems like, the presupposition is that really there should be an easygoing harmony between mankind 
in nature, but at the same time, it's not quite a harmony because like every time we touch nature, somehow we're doing something wrong. Um, and, and there's a kind of like downwards image on one hand. And, and it seems like it's something like too, that you see with like the environmentalism of today is like, well, we don't want to die. It's about like avoiding something bad. Whereas like the right-wing account that you're proposing seems to say like, no, it's, it's not really about like avoiding death. It's about like extending yourself, like reaching towards the stars, like transcending your limits in some kind of way. And, mm-hmm. and I think there was like a tweet, I think that BAP had put out pretty recently where I don't know, like, like I, I like to talk about, you know, nationalism versus globalism kind of things, but I think he put it in like two very stark pictures of like, you know, uh, I, I don't know who the man was standing in front of like, uh, you know, model rockets or something, but like either we can aim for the stars or we can have like densely huddled masses, you know, in like shacks, like which of these two futures do you want? I mean, it Mm -hmm. seems like that kind of corresponds to the two different ideas of nature that you had proposed. Um, hundred percent. And then all of your actions, like politically presuppose one of those futures or the other in a certain sense. Um, yeah, that's, that's really helpful. So then, so then thinking about elite young men, who want to transcend these limits um, and create a beautiful future for themselves and for those that they love, you have started to think about a school um, that sort of is undergirded by the holistic understanding of agriculture and human life that you have presented here. Um, uh, and you you are in correspondence with Peter Thiel, um, and you discuss this in Raw Egg Nationalist's uh, Man's World magazine. Um, but but before we talk about the school, there was something really striking in the essay that kind of um, – it's almost kind of an aside that in some sense could be developed into its whole you know own like article or conversation on its own. But um, you noted that there's a kind of like over-immersion uh, of human beings right now in the internet's man-made realities and that mm-hmm. these realities can potentially condition us into thinking about nature and biology in a kind of – well, like it, in a distorted way or in a way that makes us almost forget about those things. Would you be willing to say a little bit about mm, the potentially – like because obviously there's really good things that the internet brings about like reading groups on Homer's Iliad. Like that's like a, a net gain. But like some of the yeah. trade-offs are that it kind of conditions our thinking. Could you could you talk about the negative ways in which the internet tempts us into thinking if we're not careful? Yeah, well, I think it ultimately um... – it tempts us into just uh, dissociating from our bodies uh, and from the physical world. Uh, and that's, I think, the for, for people like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or whatever, the, the full untethering of, you know, the, the, I guess, like the consciousness uh, is how they would put it from the physical world and, and, and you know, uh, and the transposition of the consciousness into a, a so-called metaverse uh, is, is kind of like the end state of, of the Internet. Um, mm-hmm. And that that aligns very well with like leftist um, leftist visions of the future. Uh, um, you know, the, uh, so much of their so much of especially like their recent um, their sort of like post uh, post Marxist uh, beliefs. Um, uh, uh, you know, basically dream about and imagine uh, a metaverse a metaverse like reality where such things as like changing your gender or your sex uh, actually is possible because you're not um, you're not, you know, being limited and, um, and confounded by your, you know, your meat suit. <laughs> and, uh, and um, so, so, uh, you know, um, I think, and I think, you know, we're, we're, we're way closer to the metaverse than people realize in terms of uh, 
how we, how, yeah, certainly, you know, Twitter addicts, which many of us are, um, myself included, uh, are, you know, already have our, you know, one, not one foot in the metaverse, but certainly one, like at least part of our brains in it uh, by being so online. And so I think, uh, at least for me personally, I try to, um, and it's easy because I have a farm and stuff. So I, I sympathize with people who's, uh, who, who, you know, are in, are on, you know, some godforsaken place like a college campus or an urban, <laughs> an urban center in America where the, where the Twitter sphere and the metaverse uh, actually looks appealing. And actually, I think making, making the physical world as shitty as possible is part of, <laughs> you know, the marketing strategy for, uh, for, for meta. So, um, uh, certainly, uh, you know, crime ridden cities and, um, and, you know, blue haired, uh, heritons, um, making your life hell on a college campus, uh, if you're a handsome white man, uh, is, is part of the plan. So, uh, I understand and I sympathize, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, so I think, um, I think that, uh, um, yes, like this is the danger. The danger is that, you know, we're already kind of in the metaverse a little bit, uh, um, um, accidentally and, uh, and, you know, it, it doesn't take like a, that big of a logical leap to, you know, for somebody who's like extremely online to just, and who like plays video games uh, to like put on a VR headset and just like live in it full time, uh, you know. And I don't think many of our guys are like like that, but um, mm-hmm. I do think that there's, uh, that's, that's just like going to happen for, uh, you know, as soon as that technology is, is really com- available and compelling. Um I, it's just not that big of a step from where people are. A lot of people already are in terms of how they spend their lives. Um, so, so uh, wrapped up in, in, you know, uh, fake realities that are, that are only like semi tethered to, uh, to some like earthly, earthly grounding. Um, and uh, yeah. And so, so I think the, the, um, the solution to that is like a, just a radical reassertion of the, uh, you know, the sacredness of the body. Uh, and, um, I have a, I have a piece hopefully coming sometime soon. I don't know where it's going to be, but about, um, the, the body and Christianity, because, uh, you know, Nietzsche is a huge crit- critic of, um, of, uh, Christianity and specifically Paul's, uh, sort of, um, sort of hatred. I think he calls it of the body and, um, mm-hmm. this, this notion of, uh, of, you know, um, uh, Christianity as, as, you know, a, a, a religion almost purely of the spirit, uh, and, and for, first and foremost of the spirit. And I think, you know, uh, the thing that that assertion has to contend with is the fact that, um, you know, not to get too sidetracked, but I'll just tell you, uh, as a teaser of this essay that's coming out, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, is the fact that, uh, Christianity is, um, is founded upon, um, belief in, uh, the incarnation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we have to, uh, <laughs> you can, if you're going to like defend Paul's assertions, which they certainly are very anti-corporeal, um, some of them, uh, what is, what are you going to do about the fact that, uh, we worship, um, an incarnate God, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, um, and, and that the entire, um, everything, uh, is, is about the body um, that that he was that he was you know he clothed himself in flesh uh, became man uh, uh, was born um, you know uh, was born just like uh, uh, anyone else was and um, lived in his body and uh, experienced bodily temptation and ultimately uh, underwent um, you know bodily torture and crucifixion mm-hmm. um, uh, you know all of this uh, must be must be um, 
uh, integrated into our understanding. And so I think, uh, you know, just to, uh, to not bury the lead and, and get back to the point, I think that in modernity, um, a big, a, a central error of modernity that ties into this internet question is uh, the error of mistaking the mind for the soul or the spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and a good way of an- analogizing that is just this, like the idea that like thinking is praying, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that when you, when you pray, all you're doing is like thinking thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't believe that that's what prayer is. Not that it's like mutually exclusive with, with thought. Um, but I, I believe that and have one of my like earliest beliefs was that like spiritual, um, spiritual uh, uh, growth and um, spiritual understanding uh, comes from moments of like when you and, and through practices that enable you to silence thought and to kind of subdue the mind and, you know, re-enthrone the soul, which I think for so many different reasons um, has been kind of exiled as the, the rightful king of like the individual's, uh, you know, entity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um re-enthrone the soul uh and and you know um and oust the, the the usurper which is the mind uh and 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 the soul and and the way we do that in so many cases is is by is by um you know deputizing the body uh you know through exercise Nietzsche of course loved to uh, go on walks right. but you know um I, like for example like uh here, here's an example from my own life like doing try, do, trying to like PR on like a deadlift or a squat or something mm-hmm. um I just I've I've noticed that you know if you start thinking about it uh, when you're like trying to do something anything that's just like really difficult that you've never done before where you're pushing yourself beyond what you thought your limits were mm-hmm. um, thinking is just like deadly in that situation right. uh, you have to uh, like you know silence the mind in order to to do that and just like enter into like a, a mental silence and just through the the body and the soul like come together. And uh, and actually, and that's when it actually happens, and then you experience this euphoria of of, of having done it, and um, and I think that is really uh, like a, a sort of microcosmic way of understanding what um, what what I'm talking about, and I think that in this metaverse thing, like it's all it is is thought, you know, right? Um, all it is is the mind, and like it's no, there's no body and there's no soul either, so that's why it's bad. And that's why it must be uh, avoided. And the, other, the, the other version uh, has to be the uh, versions of, you know, ways of cultivating um, that, that other thing and, and um, repeating that moment that I was just describing of euphoria. When it doesn't have to be through weightlifting. It can be through a whole series of things um, uh, is, uh, is essential. Wow. Well, that, there's so much in what you said. That was good. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so to go back towards like what the beginning of what you're saying, I mean, I guess like I, I do wonder if the internet somehow makes us more liable to think in terms of abstractions in, in, cause, cause you talked about the way in which like something like, you know, trans ideology somehow makes much more sense in the age of the internet than it would like make sense at any other period of time. Um, and that makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. to me. And I wonder even if, I don't know, like the, the idea that you would, want policies in place that you know don't punish criminals if you you see crime as an abstraction like this predatory criminal doesn't really exist uh and so like you would get mad at somebody for even saving you on the street (laughs) like even when you're facing the particulars you know whatever story came out recently about a woman being angry that a man used a gun to stop somebody from attacking her 
you like lose track of the particulars that you were in danger. And if this guy didn't have that weapon and know how to use it well, then it could have been much, much worse for you. And, Mm -hmm. um, well, even death is an abstraction. Like the day, like, uh, I think this is, uh, this is part of why COVID was such an insane chimp out is because, um, you know, the specter of death, uh, has basically never descended on, living people um except maybe boomers during like nuclear brinkmanship mm-hmm. but other than that um like the the possibility you know and obviously this this subsided and and covid wasn't as deadly as people originally thought but when it first for the first like couple of months before people really knew what was going on um mm-hmm. you know like i think it, that's what drove people so insane was that all of a sudden death was no longer abstract and you know, it's just like, whereas human beings are um, uh, conditioned and, you know, uh, evolved, if that's an okay word to use, um, to, uh, to, you know, have death like all around them, um, you know, through, through uh, disease, their ancestors dying, um, you know, child, um, uh, infant mortality, and so on, these sort of like, um, you know, millennia old conditions that have only recently been uh, eradicated. Um, and even, even like, you know, it seems as though we're just like uh, prolonging old people's lives, uh, uh, indefinitely. I mean, so many of them are just like living to insane ages. Um, and so, uh, you know, and like that, that may be, that may be good or bad, but, um, uh, in terms of the impact that it has on like, you know, the, the young or not even the young, but like the young and the middle aged and, and the sort of the people who are in the prime of life, um, is that, uh, death just becomes like a non-consideration and i think that 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 um you know like the example that i the reason i bring it up is because the example that you gave like i don't think there has to be some other than like you know this uh crazy like you know self-sacrificial racial consciousness um that that woman may may be feeling or or you know has adopted through like uh media channels or whatever she also um, like has no understanding of like, like the fear of death itself has been like abstracted into this, uh, into this, like, you know, not, uh, not, like I said, non-consideration. I mean, I think that's part of the craziness. Right. Yeah. That's, that's helpful too. And so, yeah. So, so then that's like from the first part of your answer. And then from the second part, I mean, the, the statement about the emphasis in Christianity on the body that like, obviously manifestly Christianity is more focused with the life after this one in a way, but nevertheless, as you, you know, point out, it's like a, a God becomes incarnate. And so like the body like really actually means something. And, and mm-hmm. I don't, well, whatever, we, we could talk about this in a way, like at a later time. Cause I've just been thinking about this with my friend folking a little bit on like, is there some mm-hmm. way that you could on, um, I don't know. Could there be some sort of like Christian vitalist synthesis insofar as like the more that you, I don't know, maybe drill down into the demands of Christianity. I mean, they actually are like pretty high, you know, it it might be the case that it really is asking a lot of you so that there is a kind of transcendence and a rareness, you know, I don't know, like the, the saint is an unbelievably admirable and impressive human being that like most of us, the majority of human beings could never hope to even aspire to like they, they ought to imitate them, I suppose. But like it's just like such a rare human type. So anyway, that that is to say, there's like a lot about that to say between Christianity and vitalism, and I I really look forward to reading your article about the body um, when it comes out. Um. So then, okay, good. Wow, that was that was good. So then, 
Okay, so you have written an article about the school or a school that you sort of mm-hmm. imagine for boys aged 12 mm-hmm. to 18 um, that's supposed mm-hmm. to – like at bottom, the purpose of the school is to make them into warriors, into people who uh, know nothing about the metaverse or if they knew about it, look on it with contempt. They spit on this idea. They don't want to become yes. like that. They want to um, understand their limits and push against them as you were sort of saying earlier. Could you – Maybe tell us a little bit about what a day in the life of such a school might look like. Yes, well, my idea is that uh, you know it would be in a, in a, in a harsh terrain um, somewhere, you know, mount, mountainous and remote, and uh, uh, you know the the boys would be uh, would have agricultural responsibilities, mainly uh, pastoral, so uh, herding, you know, on horseback, herding um, cows and sheep and, and other things. And, um, I think, uh, you know, that doesn't take, uh, all day, especially with a lot of, a lot of guys. Uh, mm-hmm. but, um, uh, you know, so, uh, my sort of, uh, we can get into all my agricultural ideas, but they would be moving the animals, uh, frequently, um, and just making sure doing, doing other chores related to, uh, related to care for the animals. Um, and of course, you know, on some days there's more involved things that you have to do, but most days that's just moving them, moving moving uh, their water and, and things like that. And, um, and so I imagine, you know, a large, a large herd, um, hundreds of hundreds of head of, of cattle, uh, or more, and, you know, being, being tended to by, uh, by a, a, a group of, uh, a few dozen, um, a few dozen cow, you know, young cowboys and, and, uh, masters, teachers. And, uh, and then I, you know, other than those sorts of chores, I imagine the kind of school day split between, um, you know, physical, uh, physical education in, uh, in, you know, in, uh, on plein air, uh, well, everything would be on plein air actually on the, uh, except in the most inclement of weather. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, so, uh, so, uh, weightlifting, you know, there's this great, in one of Arnold's books, Arnold Schwarzenegger's books, there's this incredible description of, uh, how he would go, uh, you know, into like the Austrian Alps with uh, a few friends and some like beautiful women and just like, stay in a cabin for like a few weeks and like they would squat trees um, and uh, you know, like cut down a tree and like, just that would be their squat. That would be like their, their barbell for the squat. And uh, so, you know, this is the sort of thing that they would be doing, uh, you know, pull-ups on, on tree branches, obviously uh, martial arts uh, against each other, sparring and, and things like that. Um, and, and, you know, just classical, uh, classical feats of athleticism, javelin, uh, discus, shot put, things like this. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, the other half of the time they would be, uh, they would be memorizing poetry, uh, reading the great books, um, uh, pursuing mathematics, uh, and other, you know, there, there would be obviously a, a foundational thing, uh, a foundational set of, uh, set of courses for the younger boys. And then for, you know, maybe the last two or three years, they would be free, uh, to, to pursue, um, to pursue their, their particular interests, uh, in, in whatever areas, and uh, and given given the resources to do so, and uh, but you know of course uh, also extremely high expectations would be would be uh, imposed upon them in terms of uh, in terms of their intellectual achievements. So uh, this is the sort of uh, you know it's uh, it's it's following in some sense um, uh, Plato uh, Plato's Republic uh, the uh, his vision of education sort of splitting it halfway between uh, you know gymnastics and uh, and poetry uh, yeah. or, or gymnastics and, and uh, yes. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, I, I am a firm believer that, um, uh, you know, that a a true education needs both. In fact, uh, you know, I, I've advocated to some, to some normie con friends that, uh, you know, these conferences that they have, 
uh, where, you know, Patrick Deneen or somebody debates like some other guy that you've never heard of about, uh, you know, Protestantism versus Catholicism in America or whatever. They should just have like a wrestling match uh, either before or after the debate. And um, we should we should start instituting this Hillsdale should uh, should make this a thing. And, uh, you know, obviously uh, it would be unpopular with the current crop of, of conservative intellectuals, at least most of them. Right. But uh, I think as the as the younger ones start coming up, it would, you know, it would be accepted and it would be part of the uh, it would become part of the culture. And this would be this would be a great advancement. Um, but so, yes, this is a sort of this is the general vision. <laughs> right. <laughs> um. Adrian Vermeule uh, versus uh, <laughs> versus uh, Josiah Lippincott uh, in a uh, in a jiu-jitsu match. Uh, can you can you envision this? Uh, in yes, <laughs> and maybe also a chess a chess game between the two of them. Uh, and the th- you know best two out of three uh, uh, the the intellectual debate, the chess match, and the uh, jiu-jitsu. Uh, this is how, how we would decide who wins. Right. Yeah, maybe maybe the physical match should happen first so that um, you sort of see the way in which whoever lost the physical contest is unable to look the other one in the eyes. And that incapacity mm-hmm. to look the you know yeah. physical victor in the eyes will be sort of a sign that maybe the idea of, uh, yeah, Vermeule was maybe wrong. You know, after he's been. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yes, and I like this, and then and then chess, just in case something unlucky happened before. Like, yeah, chess as the as the uh, tiebreaker. <laughs> if there's a tie, then there's a chess match. <laughs> okay, this this makes a lot of sense to me. Um, yes, yeah, there, there might be some people interested in this, um, and he'll still. Well, I guess we'll find out. Um, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get, uh, to get up, uh, to, yeah, to, I'm, I'm trying to, I know my, my friends are all lowly, uh, lowly, um, you know, grad students and stuff. So, um, but we need to, uh, infiltrate the, uh, the higher ranks and, uh, and start, start implementing, uh, implementing these ideas. Yes. Uh, this, this sounds excellent. Um, <laughs> so then, um, yeah, I mean, there's obviously more to say about the school, but maybe, with a view to time, we can sort of turn towards the Iliad. Um, yeah, yes. because like I think we we got to know each other a little bit through doing. You, you will you started this series long ago, uh, reading Alexander Pope's translation of Homer's Iliad, and I think maybe mm-hmm. around book nine, I joined. Mm-hmm. I might have missed one or two since then, but but I really really enjoyed these conversations, and I was wondering what led you to start reading this translation. Pope's translation of the Iliad online and then having these discussion groups. And then I wonder if you could say, what do you take to be special about Alexander Pope's translation of the Iliad? Like why that translation and not others for this particular reading of it? Yes. Well, um, I, we like in the spring of this year, uh, maybe March, April, May, um, somebody, uh, well, I, I think for some reason I kind of randomly decided to. I was reading some uh, Kipling poetry, and I thought it was very funny. And uh, you know, it, it has uh, it's 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 uh, racially irreverent uh, and uh, and kind of horny. And uh, you know, there's there's a great lust for brown women, which uh, many of our compatriots uh, uh, also succumb to sometimes. <laughs> uh, so so I thought it would be funny to just have a, a Rudyard Kipling reading. And then we did that, and I don't think these are all. Any of these are recorded. These earlier ones, unfortunately, but uh, they were very funny, and and lots of people joined, and it was it was a raucous, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, alehouse type uh, tortuga 
uh, Tortuga time. And, um, and they were great. And then we started doing other poetry readings from that. And then uh, my friend Malmesbury man, uh, I believe, I believe it was either him. I think it was him. And in conjunction with uh, Enoch Powell, uh, Mog the Urbanite, um, uh, those two guys were the ones who I, I knew about Pope's translation. I'd never really read it, um, but they were the ones who said like, when is Wheelwright going to uh, read the entire, uh, the entirety of the Iliad on a space? And uh, you know, I just took that as a challenge. Um, not that I could do it in, in one, in one reading, but um, took that as a challenge and uh, just started just, you know, shortly after those original spaces, I kind of ran out of poems that I, I really wanted to read um, and that would have been, that were fun. Mm -hmm. Not that, not that I really ran out, but I, you know, none were really coming to mind. So I said, well, well, I might as well just um, start reading uh, Pope's translation of the Iliad. So one day I just completely randomly started doing that. And it was a bit haphazard for the first few books. And then we finally settled in country joined and he was kind of, um, uh, he was, he was the original co-host. He still is. He's been absent for a few weeks. He's uh, detained right now in a military prison in Thailand, I think. (laughs) But, uh, uh, the, uh, he, um, he, uh, yeah, so he was, we were doing that and, uh, and yeah, and then, and then, uh, Montana came in and, um, it's been, it's been fantastic. We're, we're, and we're almost done with the Iliad. Uh, the plan is to, uh, to start the Odyssey in the new year. Yes. So everybody should start preparing the Odyssey. Uh, and you usually do this uh, on Friday nights unless, you know, extremely, uh, difficult circumstances circumstances emerge which detain you um yes exactly yes right um sometimes w- we all are attacked at various moments um and there's nothing you can really yes. do that happens yes, attack, other, yes. other than to endure Mossad, it Mossad has been particularly active recently they've 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 called on me uh several times in recent weeks uh to perform certain covert operations uh <laughs> but i can't talk about that no and you, and you shouldn't not not here um yeah. <laughs> so okay good so so we're, I think we'd gotten what to book like 19 of the Iliad. In the yes. We just read 19. Yes. 20, 20 will be next week. Yeah. So then uh, do you have a favorite moment from the Iliad? Is there some moment that seems to be especially illuminating about the way that a human being is or a moment that's especially funny to you or just, I don't know. Is there a moment that stands out to you? Like when you think of the Iliad, is there something that just strikes you immediately before the other moments do? Well, I, I think the Iliad really starts to get truly magical around book 14. Uh, and I believe it's in 14. It might be 15. But the scene where um, where Hera seduces Zeus um, and where the scene where she's in her, her boudoir and she's preparing like the, the her whole getup, um, I just find that to be unbelievably uh, beautifully written and sexy. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, and that that certainly has always has captivated me from a young age. But uh, as I've gotten older, I've grown in appreciation for um, uh, um, um, what's his name, uh, the death of Sarpedon. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's a very beautiful scene uh, killed by uh, Patroclus. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and let me think. Uh, the book we just read has that beautiful uh, passage from Briseis. Um, uh, that that I always was moved by, um, uh, where she uh, eulogizes Patroclus, um, and just obviously every every scene with Achilles is is crazy. He's not really in uh, the 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 lion's share of the Iliad, you know. Uh, he's obviously he's still the main character, um, but he uh, he he's not 
he only has lines in you know book book nine obviously book one mm-hmm. and then book nine and then it's not really until 17 or 18 that we um really hear much dialogue from him again when finally he hears that patroclus has died but i do love that uh that scene we talked about maybe book 16 or 17 where he goes out on the on the rampart and i like to imagine that he does this in the nude <laughs> uh and uh and the he he completely changes the course of battle just by appearing uh you know and th- without actually doing any fighting he just he just shows himself and uh with with just the sight of him inspires the greeks to uh to rebuff the um to rebuff the the trojans and send them back to troy but um Yes, I think I mean one of my one of the biggest things you've helped me with is is understanding Hector and you know I never really you you've really turned me against Hector not that I really liked him that much but uh, I, I liked the scene in um in book six I think where he and Andromache share that kind of tender moment mm-hmm. um, with the with the baby and uh, the baby doesn't recognize him and, and all that and uh, I remember my my Spanish teacher uh, who was a great mentor to me in um, he had two PhDs actually from uh, University of, uh, of Salamanca. Mm. Uh, uh, and he was a very, very smart guy. And, um, and he, uh, he said that the most beautiful line in all of Western literature was uh, um, uh, in that in that scene. Uh, and he, he, he recited it in Greek. I, w- I wish I haven't had it memorized in Greek, I'll have to memorize it. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm currently trying to trying to uh, learn ancient Greek. But um, mm-hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's the scene where it says, um, you know, she she took the baby back from her husband, uh, crying through her tears or laughing through her tears or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, crying and laughing at the same time. Uh, and he said that was his favorite line in all of uh, in all of Western literature. So uh, I always uh, I always had a um, a tender spot for that for that bit as well. But Hector, um, you know, he really is. Uh, there's no denying that he's kind of a hothead. And although he's he's a good war, he's you know like certainly. Uh, one of the best warriors. He's not the best, and he's not um, he's not that wise in council. You know, he doesn't take good advice when he gets it. Um, and of course, uh, you know, from reading the uh, mysterious yellow book, um, uh, uh, Costanella Mario, mysterious uh, philosopher. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, talking about uh, Phronesis and An- Andrea. Uh, you know, um, uh, courage in battle and, and wisdom in council um, as being the the two kind of uh, sub criteria of um, of you know arete, uh, then you know uh, I don't think that you can say that um, uh, Hector has uh, uh, um, you know wisdom and counsel uh, to be honest, and I hadn't really analyzed him as closely in my previous readings um, as as we did as we have been um, in our readings, and I'm uh, I'm uh, you know I'm grateful to you for uh, for helping me to to look look more closely at him. Yeah. Well, yeah, I remember the first course I took, somehow I ended up reading the Iliad three times in college, um, which is like really good. I think that's like probably almost doesn't happen anymore. Um, but at any rate, yeah, yeah. the teacher I had, uh, maybe she said one thing. Well, I took two classes with her and the first class that I took with her, she said, some students will be capable of getting an A in this class and some of you won't be able to. It's not possible for you. I'd never heard anybody <laughs> say that in my entire life. <laughs> Um, And so then I was like, wow, I want to make sure I'm one of the few, not the many. (laughs) This is like very important. And then the second thing, uh, I mean, she said many interesting things, but the the next thing she'd said, I think I went to like office hours to sort of, because she was saying that Achilles was vastly superior to Hector. And I myself thought, I was like, I don't know. I kind of like Hector. Maybe he's better than Achilles. And then Mm -hmm. she was like, you know, Mr. Montana Classical College, like 
if you take away one thing from this class, I don't want to be too dogmatic, but this is one thing that you cannot do. If you think that like Hector is better than Achilles, you're making a big mistake because Hector is the best of the Trojans, but Achilles might be like the best, one of the highest possibilities represented by, or like one of the highest human possibilities as such, and not simply an Achaean possibility. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know, that like, kind of stuck with me and made me think like, wow, the next time I read this, maybe I'll like pay attention to this like particular theme. Um, and so I'm indebted, uh, I guess, in that sense to this particular teacher. Yes. Yes, that reminds me uh, to add uh, two, two other favorite moments. Um, mm-hmm. The first when, when uh, Achilles uh, is, is sending, um, is sending, we, we uh, you know, we, we talked about this on the spaces, but uh when Achilles is sort of giving this pump up speech to um, to the to the Myrmidons before he sends them out with Patroclus in his armor, and he says to Patroclus, you know, like, uh, I wish you and I, I wish it could just be you and me, wow. you know, uh, <laughs> uh, and like basically says, like, I wish we could annihilate everything that exists, and uh, you know, it would just be us, like, sitting, like, you know, uh, enjoying some uh, enjoying like uh, some like tobacco or something <laughs> on the on the ashes of Troy, and everybody else, including all these all of our like friends we're dead. <laughs> um, and so like, it's just so, you know, nobody else has like license to say something like that. Um, and then the other moment after Patroclus has died, uh, which we talked about just the other night um, where he says, uh, he says um, that he, w- that he, you know, one of the reasons, you know, one of, one of the things we're wondering this whole time is like, why does he love Patroclus so much? What's so great about Patroclus? Mm-hmm. And um you know, it's not like Homer, uh, like, a, you know, a modern novelist might, you know, uh, gives any kind of, you know, like psychological insight into like the the charm of Patroclus, really. Right. Um, we only really hear from him uh, in book uh, in book 16 or so when he when he goes out to uh, when he when he tries to convince Achilles and succeeds in convincing Achilles to let him go fight. Mm-hmm. And um but, you know, after he's dead, we hear all of these people like Perseus, as I mentioned, eulogize him. And we really get the sense of him as a very kind of sensitive young man. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Achilles says, you know, like, I wanted, I know that I was, I like, I had already resigned myself to the fate of dying here. And I wanted uh, Patroclus to be my son's, like, foster father, mm-hmm. um, back my son who's back in, in Greece. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was another just, like, very... Um, moving moment that uh i had never really honestly paid that much attention to before i've read this is my third or fourth time reading the iliad and uh all different i've read fagels probably twice and Lattimore i read uh last summer and um so this is the first time reading pope and uh and uh so um yeah like and i just never it never stuck out to me that 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 was his part of the reason for his his great mourning and um you know, it make it, it gives you it doesn't give a direct sense of Patroclus's character, but it certainly gives an indirect kind of um, endorsement of him uh, by Achilles. That's such because it's such a sensitive and obviously tender, and um, it has nothing to do with like his his um, courage on the battlefield or anything. It's just like mm-hmm. uh, you know how many how many people are there who who you or I would uh, would want to um, to be our, to take care of our son if we died so um that kind of thing so uh it's very human and uh and that was moving yes yeah wow well i think this this strikes me as a as a beautiful way to end uh there are many serious things uh many funny things and i think that's how it ought to be um 
Yes. Do you have any final thoughts, William? Uh, well, this has been uh, terrific. One of uh, this has been one of the best uh, conversations I've had on a, on a podcast. So uh, you know, I've I've really enjoyed uh, getting to know you uh, via the Iliad, and um, and uh, you know, I hope I'll uh, hope I'll be able to come on again sometime. Yes, that would be awesome. Uh, I look forward to you know talking about the Iliad next Friday. Beautiful. All right. Well, uh, William Wheelwright and Brian Cerberus Wilson are out.